Check it out, Startup Nation. I know many of you are trying to improve your marketing performance, right? You have your business or your e-commerce store, and you're trying to increase that brand awareness. No worries. I got you. You should listen to the brand new Keep Optimizing podcast. That's optimizing with an S and not a Z. It's a marketing podcast that will provide you with not only the latest tips and advice in the game, but also you will hear from experts in their field when it comes to email marketing, SEO, and more. This is a must-listen-to podcast for my e-commerce entrepreneurs. It's hosted by Chloe Thomas, who is a 15-year marketing expert, best-selling author, and award-winning podcast host. It's already a top 20 marketing podcast in seven countries, so clearly you're going to get amazing value every episode. So as you can see, Style Nation, you're in good hands with my girl CT. So listen and subscribe to the Keep Optimizing podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you like to get your favorite podcast. You can also get more information at keepoptimizing.com. The link is there in the show notes. It's time to be about that life, the startup life. Here's your host, Dominic Lawson. All right, Startup Nation, so I hope you're ready to receive some value today. My name is Dominic Lawson, and this is The Startup Life, the show for entrepreneurs and career-minded professionals. You know, Startup Nation, we are always trying to predict what happens next, and so you know, so that way you know we can get ahead of it, right? And we do this in business, we do this in life, we do this in all sorts uh, of ways, but what if I told you that maybe that's not uh, the best way to go about it, and maybe we've fallen victim to prediction addiction well today's guest is here to explain uh what that is and more she is a texas-born cambridge educated author former media ceo and award-winning journalist and bbc documentary uh, maker whose ted talks have been viewed more than 12 million times her six previous books include willful blindness which is named one of the most important business books of the decade by the financial times she has appeared on npr cnn cnbc and the BBC and has written for Fast Company and the Huffington Post. Her latest book is Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future. She is Margaret Heffernan. Margaret, how are you, ma'am? I am just great. It's really nice to be talking to you. Sounds great. Sounds great. We definitely could use your help today. Are you ready to pour some knowledge into Startup Nation today? Because we're definitely looking to kind of dive into your book and everything else. Sure, I'm ready for you. Let's do it. So if you would, just kind of share your origin story and your background a little bit, Margaret, if you don't mind. Sure. My dad uh, worked in the oil business, so we left Texas and moved to the Netherlands when the North Sea oil was opening up. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to the other side of the North Sea and moved to England. And by then, I'd been out of America for longer than I'd been in it. So I decided to stay and go to university. And uh, then I worked for the BBC for 13 years, making radio and TV shows. And then uh, my husband got a position at Harvard. He does medical research. Gotcha. And so we moved to Boston. And okay. I ran tech companies there for nearly 10 years. And then we decided to come back because our families are both here. And I wanted to have some kind of business that had no employees, and it turned out that that pretty much limits your choices. So um, <laughs> I started writing, and I've been writing and doing speaking engagements and teaching ever since. Talk about the, the differences between, I don't know, living in the States and living in England. What are some of those big differences? Well, I... Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I thought living, I thought working in the States was the greatest place I'd ever worked. Mm, okay. I love the optimism of people. I loved when I said, oh, I'm thinking of starting a business and, you know, I think I might do this and so on. Almost every single time people said, oh, that's so fantastic. What can I do to help? Gotcha. It was so encouraging. And in the UK, if I said that, people would look at you and think, Oh, I see. She can't get a real job. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, so, that's so I really, really loved it. And, you know, people were incredibly good to me. They were so supportive. They were so encouraging. They were so helpful. And I just loved it. I mean, it was just the best work environment I've, I've really ever known. And I think that quality of optimism and helpfulness that generally speaking, Americans have is just a phenomenal asset. I hear that. I, I hear that. We we definitely often uh, rank highly in the world when it comes to confidence and stuff like that. So I, I definitely 
understand that. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your dad. Tell me about your dad a little bit more. You say he worked in the oil business? Well, my dad's kind of an interesting story. So he came from a desperately poor background of coal miners in Texas. Okay. Who kicked him out when he said he wanted to go to college. Mm. Um, and so he spent a year working trying to earn you know, enough money for a year's tuition and was kind of saved by the Second World War. Gotcha. And so after, so he joined the Navy, and then, of course, the GI Bill meant that he could go to college, and right. he trained as an engineer. And he worked for what became Exxon uh, all of his life until he was 55, at which point, because he was quite a difficult individual, if I'm going to be honest. Gotcha. Um, they fired him, and he was heartbroken. Mm. And I think spent about a year being very depressed. And then he became an entrepreneur, and he set up helping and advising um, the kind of young, independent energy companies. And he had more fun, and he made more money than the rest of his career put together. And it's so interesting, because, of course, in his generation, you know, that is what you did. You got a job with a big corporation. You stayed there for life. And I'm just so grateful that he got a chance to be an entrepreneur, because he was absolutely made for it. Gotcha. And I've never seen him happier, you know, and he was still working the day he died, you know, just for the love of it. For sure. For sure. No, I, I definitely understand that. And that's one of the things we see about uh, very successful, very amazing entrepreneurs. They're like, there's never this idea of I'm done. There's never this idea I've made it uh, like I've made it. I'm successful now. It's like there's just always just love what they do a lot of times and, and they just keep doing it until. That's right. Yeah. You know, so, and, and I always admire that and i appreciate you sharing that and it seems like you know and we're definitely going to dive into your book a little a little bit just now but kind of talk about because your dad kind of left you no know, lived that uncharted life uh and, and just kind of forged ahead kind of talk about you know maybe some of those lessons that uh that we can learn today a little bit from him <laughs> well it's interesting because i mean he was an entrepreneur my mother was an entrepreneur okay um you know, so, I mean, one of the things I learned from him, you know, kind of the wrong way around, right. is, you know, it really pays to be nice to people. Mm, <laughs> uh, sure. People like you a lot more if you're not a bully, and he absolutely was a bully. Um, and, you know, so I think, you know, and I, I saw the way, you know, when I was growing up, I saw the way that a really kind of heavy corporate culture really kind of shriveled his soul and I think it's one of the things that made him you know so hard and such a bully and it was quite interesting when he became an entrepreneur that he was so supportive of the young you know people starting their oil companies right and so you know really uh, he became a very very much nicer person I have to say right um and my mother you know my mother um got married at the age of 18 and had two, two kids and then when I, I'm the younger one, and by the time you know, I was a teenager, she saw that, you know, that that she actually what she noticed in London was that there were a lot of really beautiful buildings full of really beautiful apartments mm -hmm. that were desperately old-fashioned and dusty and faded, and so she started taking them over and modernizing them, and you know, made another fortune herself doing that. So you know, and she had, I mean, she gradually. Um, through night courses and stuff, graduated from college. But, you know, neither of them were trained for what they ended up doing. And, you know, I'm really interested that most of the people I know who've had really successful careers, you know, none of them started doing what eventually they ended up doing right. that they were most successful at. Right. And I think that, you know, a lot of careers are, just a series of experiments. I'm going to try this, and now I know a little bit more about myself. I'm going to try something else. And you kind of, by experiment to experiment, you figure out what you love. But I also think that you know, approaching work that way is useful because the world keeps changing. Absolutely. You know, so my dad couldn't have been an entrepreneur when he graduated from college, but he could later in life. And you keep changing. Right. You know, so I loved working for the BBC for 13 years, but then I just had a a kind of independent streak that they couldn't satisfy. For sure. So, you know, so I left not because I was unhappy there, but because there were just other other experiments I wanted to try. 
For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. And speaking of experiments, that leads me back to uh, your book that we're going to dive into Uncharted Startup Nation, how to make how to navigate uh, the future. And if you ready to purchase that book, we have a link there in the show notes for easy access. If you're listening to the replay uh, on the podcast, uh, for sure. And so speaking of experiments, you talk about that in your book uh, quite a lot. You talked about it in the book, you talk about it in tech talk, but kind of talk about the importance of, you know, experimenting and, and being okay to, you know, uh, to fail with those experiments and what you learn. Yeah. Well, I mean, I generally, you know, don't talk about the failure of experiments because experiments in science are really designed to learn the next thing. Right. So even experiments that don't prove their hypotheses, they tell you something, you know, namely, your hypothesis was wrong. Right. So you still now know something that you didn't know before. And so I think it's much more helpful to people to say, you know, experiments are just how we learn. I think they're how the human race has always learned. You know, it's how we've progressed is by trying stuff, learning from it, and starting, you know, and then going on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So, and it's interesting because I was talking to a bunch of undergraduates who were just starting college this week. Mm -hmm. And one of them asked me about failure. And I said, you know, just don't think of it that way because you'll beat yourself up and you'll lose confidence. I hear that. If you think of doing experiments, then the really important thing is regardless of the out, what happened in the experiment, what have you learned? What have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about the thing you were experimenting in? And, you know, the people who learn fastest, you know, make greatest progress. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. Now, Margaret, I, I understand that part about, you know, thinking about experiments and, and thinking about not, you know, thinking about failure in, in a different place, you know, thinking about it differently. Sorry. Uh, but it, it's almost kind of like we've been ingrained, you know, whether it be through school, whether it be through society, like if you're not right, you're wrong. And so how do you like as a leader yeah. in an organization, how do you like ch- help change that mindset with, you know, within the culture to think of experimenting uh, differently? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think the really important thing in any kind of organization is when you start doing something that you, that's never been done before, which is what innovation is, that I think it really helps to use the language of experimentation Mm, because, you know, as opposed to say a pilot, um, because then you kind of move away from the language of failure. And, you know, that doesn't mean that when I was running tech companies, I was just, you know, all laid back and, well, let's just see what we learn and never mind what happens. <laughs> right. You know, but I think, you know, so you want people to be pretty sharp and focused about what they're doing. But, you know, almost everybody in tech knows that the first time you build something is not going to be perfect. Of course. So I think, you know, the point is, how good can we get it this time? And then when it's done, what have we learned that can make it better? So I think this whole idea of we're on a path that leads to better is just, I think it leads to more creative thinking. Gotcha. And I think, you know, I write about this in my book, which is, you know, one of the things that has made 3M so brilliant in its innovation is they, they do lots of experiments and lots and lots and lots of them don't work. But what they don't do is bury them six feet deep and pretend they never happened. Right. And what's, so they do these kind of very detailed postmortems, and they ask this really great question, which is, what would have to change for this really to be a winner? Mm. And the reason they ask that is because a lot of the things that they're working on, the only reason they don't work is because the market's not there yet. Gotcha. So what they're doing is saying, let's make sure, let's keep an eye on this market. Let's make sure when it starts to grow that we get this out of the cupboard and look at it again. And people always say, you know, how does 3M manage to innovate so fast? Well, it isn't fast. It's just that they don't forget what they learned before and they look for the moment that's right for it. For sure. For sure. Thank you uh, for sharing that. You know, also in the book, you you have a chapter, uh, you know, and this chapter started nation is does history uh, repeat itself? And you talk about this story about Robert McNamara uh, and the Vietnam War. Kind of share that story and and, and some uh, uh, bullet points from that story, if you don't mind. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, the 
so most people think history repeats itself. Right. And, and, and historians know that it doesn't, right? Right. And, um, and one of the, the, the things people always say when they talk about this is, oh, Munich. Every time there's a terrible dictator who has to be confronted, mm. it's like Munich. It's when right. we should have confronted Hitler. Right. And when America went into the Vietnam War, both Eisenhower and Johnson kept comparing Munich uh, to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And McNamara later in life said, you know, this is just a completely ridiculous comparison because nothing about Vietnam not its politics, not its culture, not its history. None of it is like Munich. Right. Nothing about China. So one of the big fears was, you know, that if if Vietnam went communist, then, you know, China would try to take it over. The Vietnamese had all through their history had an absolute fear and hatred of China. The notion of kind of becoming part of China was never going to happen. I mean, they would rather become American than become Chinese. Right. And he said, you know, thinking, the problem with thinking this is like Munich, this is like a European culture, McNamara said, meant that we didn't think about anything else, and we didn't do our research, and we didn't talk to the white people, and we didn't understand the culture. And so we just made mistake after mistake after mistake, because... We thought we knew where we were. The metaphor of Munich gave us a level of comfort that was completely misleading. Right. It's funny you mention that because, you know, and you talk about how, you know, those analogies can be very dangerous. It's almost like when we come across thing that that's, you know, like a crisis or something like that, we're so quick to uh, attach it to something we already know for. Is that because we're trying to look for our own type of comfort? We're trying to hurry up and solve the problem. Where do you think that comes from? Well, it's probably, you know, our brains are very well designed to be, to recognize patterns. Right. Because, you know, then, then it's because if you think it's, if it's a real pattern, it's a fantastic shortcut. Right. So it's partly that. So we tend to overemphasize the similarities and then we trivialize and marginalize the differences. But the differences is where all the, the, the helpfulness of history lies. You know, why is it different this time? And what, you know, historians said to me is the reason history doesn't repeat itself is because you know the history. So you have knowledge that people in that historical moment did not have. So what you should think about is what do we know beyond the history that can help us make different, better and more relevant decisions? For sure. And there's a you know a great example of that in my book, talking mm-hmm. about a, a really wonderful Irish historian who started writing about Irish history in a very different way from the kind of cliche of, you know, the Irish people doomed to be in bondage to the British forever. And you know, many people in Ireland today say that the rewriting or reinterpretation of Irish history is a kind of change people's sense of themselves and what the country was capable of. And that thinking about their history in a different way made it possible for the Good Friday peace agreement to be signed. Mm. And, you know, so it's a really powerful illustration how if we think of history as something that's susceptible to change, we can see opportunities. Whereas if we think history repeats itself, we see nothing except blockage mm. or we feel unduly, unduly confident when in fact we're out of our gaps. For sure. For sure. Thank you uh, for sharing that. I appreciate that. I-, I wanted to ask you about something else in the book. You know, you have a chapter, uh, think like an artist and you have in here says, mm. uh, quote, uh, we talk about starting quote artists begin without being asked end quote. And so I know a lot of times in business, uh, or even in education, when it comes to students, you know, it's like, we'll say, uh, no, uh, create a story involving, I don't know, lions. 
and they'll be like, you know, so mm-hmm. how you want me to do it? How you want me to add, you know, how you want me to frame it? And it's, and it's like, instead of just doing it, you know, uh, so why is right. that important, you know, for, you know, to kind of implement that in kind of business uh, mindset or whatever the case may be in a, in a business or a culture or organization is what I'm saying, actually. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I often think there's quite that entrepreneurs and artists have quite a lot in common mm-hmm. because they both are fantastic at picking up what I think of as early signals, you know, just getting a sense of something new is possible or right. now something new is wanted. And they're very often, as we know, ahead of their time. And they don't wait for validation because if, you know, by the time you've got all the validation you need, it's too late. Right. Other people are there before you. And what artists do is they kind of follow their instincts. They're much less data driven and they're much less a kind of, they're much less interested in kind of pleasing an existing market. Right. And one reason I wrote about artists was because I think that, you know, what's so fascinating is that they, they have, of course, you know, written books. Poems, plays, creative paintings, all sorts of things, mm-hmm. which are way, way ahead of their time and which have incredible staying power. And they don't do that because they've done the market research to figure out what people want. They do it because they're supremely in tune with their times. And I think the best of entrepreneurs are like that too. You know, they're really, really sensitive to social changes, to mood changes, to technological changes. And, you know, the very best of them uh, invent things way before anybody's saying they want them. I mean, the personal computer is, of course, a perfect example. Nobody in the world was saying we want one of these, but it didn't stop people from making them. And, of course, the people who waited until there was a demand, you know, by the time it was obvious, it was too late. Right. No, you're absolutely right. You know, we a lot of times, sorry about that. A, a lot of times we, you know, we do have some people who just kind of wait for that demand. And by the, by that time, you're just, it's, it's too late. The market's already left you or the very least uh, you kind of, you know, don't at the very least don't get the, the desired result you wanted uh, and, uh, and from the, if you like, hadn't started from the beginning. So I appreciate you, uh, uh, sharing all of that for sure. Startup Nation. Once again, we're talking to Margaret F. Heffernan, the author of Uncharted, How to Navigate, uh, the Future. I wanted to ask you this because you, in your book, you have a lot of uh, great stories, uh, in, uh, in the book that kind of reemphasize some of your points and stuff like that. And I know, uh, you, you actually kind of wrote this book right before, uh, the crisis, our, our, our global pandemic, uh, you know, mm. has kind of, you know, kind of reared its ugly head. Kind of talk about, you know, not necessarily that, you know, you saw this coming or whatever, but kind of talk about the reception that you've been receiving, uh, when people say, wow, this book is very timely. Yes. Well, it is, of course, incredibly timely. I mean, we launched it in London, uh, a month before lockdown. Mm -hmm. And, um, and of course it's just come out in the U S. Um, I, there's a lot about epidemics and absolutely not because I picked them this one because I absolutely did not. But because epidemics are a fantastic, kind of perfect illustration of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. You know, and people talk about uncertainty a great deal, but I think without quite understanding either what it really is or what it feels like. And um, so the thing that, that's so interesting about epidemics is that they're generally certain. They are always happening. Right. Throughout, I mean, forever through human history. Mm-hmm. But every single one is different. There's no profile of, a, of an epidemic. And as a consequence, um, you don't know when they're going to start. You don't know where they're going to start. And you don't know what the disease is going to be each time. So they are absolutely unpredictable. So you're in this really uncomfortable position, which uncertainty is, well, you know something's going to happen, but you don't have enough information to plan for it. And so, you know, a lot of my book looks at, okay, but just because you don't have all the information you need should not stop you from preparing. And in the last chapter, I wrote about this amazing organization called the Center for Epidemic Preparedness, which, you know, in 2017 started work on coronavirus vaccines, started work 
on if we ever needed a massive amount of them, who would we get to manufacture them? Started work on connecting members and parts of the healthcare community um, that could work together quickly in the case of a pandemic. And, you know, the only thing they did wrong is, you know, we'd all wish they'd started 10 years earlier. Right. But, um, but they started doing all of that because they noticed that governments had stopped doing all of this. They used to do it, but they'd stopped doing it because we'd had so many years without an epidemic. They thought, why waste the money? You know, it's never going to happen. Who cares? Right. And, you know, it's a classic failure on the part of government to understand that it's in the very nature of uncertainty that these things are unpredictable. And therefore, you have to do what they call just-in-case planning, because the failure to plan is so costly that even if you do lot preparation that you never use, it's still better, because the failure to do it is so much worse. Right. Right. Do, do you think that also just comes from like, you know, like, like I said, it will never happen again. We have other pressing matters and stuff like that. And so you just, yeah. you know, it's just always fascinating because I, I remember reading an article uh, here in the States about uh, George W. Bush and he read the book about the Spanish flu and he was telling people mm-hmm. that we, we need to get a, we need to get ahead of this and uh, and stuff like that. So it, it almost seems like, you know, you have some of these people who say like we have to prepare for it. Then it's like ah, we'll be fine. You know what I mean? Which can be just yeah. ultimately dangerous. So I appreciate you sharing all that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So, so I think you know part of what happened also is that um, at one point, you know, in 2019, actually, mm-hmm. there was a sort of simulation right. of um, you know, in the case of a pandemic in America, what would we do? And they ran this simulation over several days, and they discovered all kinds of things that didn't work and different agencies that didn't communicate with each other and things that were in short supply and all that kind of thing. So they actually discovered many of the things that we've had to live, you know, in real time. But then they didn't follow up and do anything about it. Right. So they actually had the information. But absolutely, to your point, I think there were other things to do. But I also think that, you know, we've grown up in an age where a lot used to be predictable, and therefore we've grown up really obsessed with efficiency. Right. And, you know, we don't want any, 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 that's inefficient. And the problem is that where you have things that are uncertain, you can't afford to be 100% efficient because then you don't have the resources you need when you need them. And so I think what happened is, you know, the Trump administration kind of was enthralled to the idea of let's not waste anything. And so all this learning which they had, they did not act upon. And the consequence, of course, has been beyond tragic. Right. You know, and, and I'm glad you said that Startup Nation, uh, you know, and speaking of efficiency, Startup Nation, if you look in the link in the show notes, we also have a link uh, for Margaret's TED talk. And she talks about uh, the efficiency myth uh, and, and stuff like that, you know, in that TED talk, which I thought was uh, really fascinating. You talk about you actually talked about uh, this uh, story about uh, nurses in a hospital. Could you share a little bit about that, if you would? So, um, you know, one of the things that we found here in the UK, for example, mm-hmm. is that we've worked very hard in our national health service to keep everything super, super, super efficient. Right. And uh, the consequence of that was, you know, it's just like just in time. Um, you know, we didn't have enough protective equipment. We didn't have enough ventilators. We didn't actually even have enough nurses, as right. it turned out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so this is, and of course, the thing is that for a government, it looks fantastic if you say our critical care unit is being used, you know, it has not to 99% capacity. Because it says, well, that's great planning, right? You don't have any waste. Right. But of course, when you have, I mean, actually, even if we had a terrible, you know, plane crash or car crash, it would have been overextended. So, you know, I think it's really interesting because almost all businesses obsess over efficiency. Right. And in the transitions that we've all had to make to working from home, of course, suddenly they discovered, yikes, lots of the people who work for us, you know, don't have good Wi-Fi or they don't have a de- decent office chair. Well, they don't have laptops. Right. 
And, you know, the amount of scurrying around that had to happen, you know, was well and truly terrible, really, for a lot of people. So I think there's a real lesson here, which is we have to learn to discover and to, to define the difference between things that are predictable and things that are not. And the way that I talk about this in the book is it's the difference between things that are complicated, where we have a lot of control over it, and where things do repeat themselves very predictably, and things that are complex, where there are so many forces influencing so many forces, some of them that we can see and some of them that we can't, and situations where very small things can make such a huge difference. In these things, although there are patterns, they're not predictable. And that's where we need more robustness. And, you know, a classic example of that is, you know, if you had been, if you had been running a company whose sole business was the manufacturing of plastic straws, you would have had a terrible year last year. Hmm. If, on the other hand, plastic straws was just one of your products and you also made paper straws and you also made all kinds of other things, you probably would have been okay. Right. And I think, you know, we need to start, we've become so obsessed with specialization and really fine margins and so on. And we've become, I think, a little overconfident that we have everything in control. And, uh, you know, globalization has made it very, very much harder to have anything under, everything under control because you just need a severe weather event somewhere or labor disturbances or, um, trade disputes or, you know, political upheaval to discover that your suppliers cannot get their goods to you. Right. And this again happened in the pandemic where lots of parts that had to come from China, you know, could not come from China because China was using them all. Right. So, so we, I think we have to do a very big rethink about how much we remain slaves to efficiency because it has hidden dangers that we can fall into at great cost. Right. And you talk about that a lot in, in, in your book and your writings and your speaking engagements about that human element kind of being uh, interwoven into uh, uh, that efficiency myth and, and how we are so data driven. We are so data driven about some mm-hmm. things that we don't we don't we forget about the human element. You did a fantastic way of illustrating this yeah. in your TED talk when you talk about the grocery store and the, the kids with trying to buy up all the coconuts or something like that, yeah. uh, which I thought was yeah. very uh, interesting yeah. for sure. Once again, start yeah, so this, this, yeah, go ahead. This is kind of interesting because it was a supermarket, you know, supermarkets have to do thousands of checks every, every day, right. you know, to make sure that food is safe. And they started thinking, well, instead of all these teams we have, why don't we just computerize all this right. and allocate tasks to everybody? And then we don't need any managers and we don't need any teams and all this malarkey. And so they did that, you know, thinking this is, this is a relatively controllable, complicated business. But what they'd forgotten was customers. And it may be that your refrigerators are really predictable and, you know, your SKUs are really predictable, but customers, it turns out, are not. Right. So you get a, you know, you get a kid come in who knocks over a display. Well, the computer allocating jobs doesn't know about that. And you have the local high school say, right, you know, tomorrow everybody has to bring in a coconut. Mm -hmm. The computer doesn't talk to the high school. And so suddenly, you know, they realize that, wow, there's all this stuff that happens. It's unpredictable. And now we fired all our managers. We don't have anybody who knows how to run this stuff anymore. And, you know, then the other story, which I think you were mentioning earlier about the nurses, you know, is again, a fantastic experiment. You know, I love experiments. You can probably tell. I can tell. Um, Where a lot of, a lot of healthcare in the Netherlands is done at home because it's not, it's very well understood. People recover much faster at home when they come out of the hospital. And so there was this very, very complicated bureaucratic system where you come out and your insurance allocates a contract to a nursing company and the nurse gets told, you know, go and visit this patient for five minutes on Wednesday and three minutes on Thursday and seven minutes on Friday and, you know, barcode everything. 
And all the nurses hated it because it made them feel like robots. Right. And a nurse who was also had a background in economics said, well, let's just try something different here. So let's automate the allocation of contracts because that is the same every time. Totally predictable. Right. But then let's not try to to predict how much and what kind of nursing each patient gets because every patient is different. Exactly. So instead of trying to manage this so minutely, let's just tell the nurses, do what you think is right. Use your judgment. And I mean, this is a this is an amazing experiment because they didn't know what would happen. They just thought, well, maybe it'll make the nurses happier, right? Right. But what they found was that the cost of providing the whole service fell by thirty percent because the patients got better in half the time because the judge the nurses could make that day by day judgment. You know, Mrs. Jones needs a lot of attention today or no attention today, or she needs to do more exercise or less exercise. So they were getting really personalized attention, and they recovered very much faster. And I think, you know, what I love about this story is that the the nurse who kicked it off said, you know, you couldn't think your way to this incredible saving. You couldn't model it on a spreadsheet. There is no other way to find this out except to try it. And when I, you know, when I said to him, you know, was there anything that really surprised you? He said, I just had no idea it could be so easy to make such a gigantic improvement. And it's kind of interesting now because I'm actually working with a kind of new healthcare system in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And they've been set up specifically to try to do healthcare in a different way. and. You know, getting them to do experiments is like pulling teeth. <laughs> I believe Because it. although they have been set up specifically to try to reinvent healthcare so it's better, it's it's more successful, it's less expensive, and it's more patient centric. You know, the kind of gravitational pull of convention and tradition is enormous. And I keep saying to them, if you don't try something different you're never going to get a different outcome. For sure. But, you know, they're so afraid of, you know, failure, as we were discussing earlier, right? that, you know, they just, they're just terrified. But the whole reason that they exist is to try to find something better. Because everybody knows, you know, healthcare in America is too expensive, it's too slow, it's too bureaucratic. And, you know, after three years, 50% of doctors wish they weren't in medicine anymore. So this is a real problem. And you're not going to solve it by thinking about it. You have to try different ways of, of, of solving medical problems. All right, Startup Nation, so we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. we got to pay some bills. Once again, my name is Dominic Lawson, and you're listening to The Startup Life. Check it out, Startup Nation. I know many of you are trying to improve your marketing performance, right? You have your business or your e-commerce store, and you're trying to increase that brand awareness. No worries. I got you. You should listen to the brand new Keep Optimizing podcast. That's optimizing with an S and not a Z. It's a marketing podcast that will provide you with not only the latest tips and advice in the game, but also you will hear from experts in their field when it comes to email marketing, SEO, and more. This is a must-listen-to podcast for my e-commerce entrepreneurs. It's hosted by Chloe Thomas, who is a 15-year marketing expert, best-selling author, and award-winning podcast host. It's already a top-20 marketing podcast in seven countries, so clearly you're going to get amazing value every episode. So as you can see, Stoutermation, you're in good hands with my girl, CT. So listen and subscribe to the Keep Optimizing podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you like to get your favorite podcast. You can also get more information at keepoptimizing.com. The link is there in the show notes.
Oralex powers this episode of the Startup Life. Startup Nation, as a podcaster, radio host, and business owner, I know a thing or two about the need for your message to come through clearly to your target audience. The last thing you want when trying to close a big deal over the phone or giving a sales presentation in your conference room is to have the person you are talking to be distracted by either the fact that you sound like you're in a warehouse or an outside noise like a fire truck. Trust me, Startup Nation. I know this all too well from experience. And that is why Oralex has your back. Oralex Acoustics creates professionally tested products that you can trust in a commercial space or at home. Better office acoustics improves intelligibility when video conferencing or generic conversation reduces stress and helps build a proactive work atmosphere. From a home studio for my content creators to your office space downtown, your gear performs better in an acoustically treated room. Trust me, you are in good hands with Oralex as they are the number one brand in acoustics, providing trusted solutions for over 40 years. Also, you can download the Oralex Acoustic Treatment mobile app in the Apple or Google Play Store to give you specifically designed and instantaneous recommendations for various room types. Go to Oralex.com and use the promo code STARTUP in all caps for 10% off your entire order. The link is there in the show notes if you are listening to the replay on the podcast. So if you are ready to stop sounding like you're having a sales meeting in a sports arena, go with Oralex. Professional audio made simple. Tresta powers this episode of The Startup Life. Okay, Startup Nation, I want to talk to you about our sponsor, Tresta. Tresta is an app for iPhone and Android that lets you do business calling and texting from anywhere. I know so many entrepreneurs that are still using their their personal phone number for business calls. It can get complicated drawing the line between your personal and professional life. Startup Nation, this is the best business phone app out there. Whether you just need a business phone number or if your team is ready for a complete business phone system, Tresta is totally flexible and can grow with your business. And it's all unlimited. Calling, texting, and all of the powerful call management features like auto attendance, call recording, user groups, and more for just $15 per user per month. With Tresta, there's no contract and you don't need any special hardware, just your smartphone you're already using. Tresta is easy to configure so you can set everything up yourself, all online avoiding all the hassle and high overhead costs of setting up a traditional business phone system, which is important because as entrepreneurs, we are always trying to cut cost and time. They're often a 30-day free trial so you can see if Tresta's virtual phone system is right for you. Communicate smarter and more efficiently with Tresta. Start now at Tresta.com forward slash Startup Life. That's T-R-E-S-T-A dot com forward slash Startup Life. The link is there in the show notes if you're listening on the podcast. Tresta, business communication simplified. All right, Startup Nation, welcome back as we continue our conversation with today's guest here on The Startup Life. For sure. You know, and, and I appreciate you sharing that because I, I find, you know, what you're saying about healthcare. There's a lot of parallels when it comes to education uh, as well. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I think of nurses, I think of teachers. When I think of patients, I think of students. And I think, you know, uh, uh, one of the two biggest things that are ripe for disruption, but are probably resistant to it the most is seems to me, in my opinion, is healthcare and education. So I can definitely understand yeah. and I appreciate uh, you sharing all of that uh, for sure. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I think that's a, it's a great insight because actually the nurse who did this phenomenal work in the Netherlands mm-hmm. is now starting to work with local schools mm. because he saw exactly what you've seen. Right. And it'll be fascinating to see what happens. You know, I'll, sure. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> please do. Please do. Definitely. You know, we're an education consultant firm uh, at, at our core. And so we're definitely always looking for innovations and, and ways to improve education. So I appreciate you uh, sharing that, Margaret, for sure. Uh, Startup Nation, we're actually wrapping up with Margaret Heffernan, the author of Uncharted, How to Navigate uh, the Future. We have a link there in the show notes for easy access if you're listening to the replay on the podcast. But also uh, check out mheffernan.com. We have that link uh, there as well where you can check out Margaret and uh, all of her books and all her resources that she has on uh, her website. Margaret, I want to ask you something really quickly uh, because, you know, you spent you know a, a good amount of time at the BBC and the BBC is a news organization that I highly uh, respect here uh, across the pond. I want to ask you your kind of commentary or your uh, or on the state of journalism uh, right now. It, it seems like maybe we're in a place where 
you know, we're kind of in the era of like what people call quote unquote fake news or whatever. Uh, and we have a lot uh-huh. of people who are so quick to, uh, to be first as opposed to being right. So I guess I just, I'm just curious yeah. about your state, um, your commentary on the state of journalism as it, as we are right now. Yeah. Well, I think the state of journalism is a kind of classic market failure. Okay. You know, that, that as journalism became a purely commercial market, right. It is hugely fed an appetite for sensationalism and, Let's face it, fiction. Right. And um, and I mean, I, you know, I I think to be honest, I think it's worse in the UK in the US than it is in the UK. But I think it's a problem absolutely everywhere. Gotcha. And I think the great thing about the BBC, which is, um, you know, I think still a truly great institution and one of the greatest reputation builders, absolutely, for the United Kingdom that we have is there is still just this incredible dedication to get it right, to be fair, to cover all the bases. And, of course, nobody always gets it right. Of course. But I think they have a fundamental remit that they take really seriously, which is to cover all sorts of stories regardless of, you know, whether they're just going to win the ratings that day. Right. And I think if we're going to get journalism back into some kind of better place, I think there has to be more room made for nonprofit journalism. I think mm. there just has to be. Gotcha. And I think, um, I mean, I did some work many years ago with the FCC, and I think, I think it didn't see the market failure that was staring it in the face. It adds, I know firsthand, it did not see the impact that the internet would have. You know, the absolute disappearance of local newspapers, for example, in the United States. And um, I don't know how we get back to a better, more wholesome market, but I think it is an absolute abject market failure. And it serves democracy so poorly. You can't have a vibrant democracy if people aren't well informed with trustworthy information. And, you know, why are we weeping the whirlwind now? Right. Of course. Do you think, you know, you talked about the Internet, you know, a large part of the the news that a lot of people get uh, comes from social media. Do you think they kind of fed that beast of that failure a little bit? Definitely. I mean, it's a really interesting question. Right. Um, Is. You know, was the Internet a really great idea or not? Mm. And I have to say, you know, having made my career in it, there are definitely days where I I honestly say to myself, I wish we'd never done this. Gotcha. It's it's so out of control. Right. And it's so destructive. And, you know, of course, there are other days I think, oh, my God, isn't it so fantastic? I can do all this research just sitting at my desk. This is wonderful. Right. So, And it's both of those things. But I have to say, and I know lots of people will scream hearing this, but I think it absolutely has got to be regulated because it has shown itself incapable of being responsible. Right. And the consequences are just too enormous. For sure. For sure. And I'm not a big favor of, of regulation. Gotcha. But, um, you know, certainly what it's doing to democracy all over the world is, um, for me, unbelievably frightening. Absolutely. No, I, I definitely uh, share that sentiment uh, for sure from the, the being frightened part and the regulations. Uh, but I wanted to get your take on it because I know you have a different uh, mm-hmm. vantage point, you know, working in the at the BBC and stuff like that. That's why a lot of times when I mm-hmm. see certain uh, news items and stuff like that, I, I'll either I'll either check the BBC or the Washington Post to see if like yeah. there's like, you know, like if there's any credibility to what people uh, kind of put out there uh, for sure. Uh, so Margaret, I'm actually going to start wrapping up with you. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your book. And once again, Startup Nation, that book is Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future. That link is in the show notes for easy access for you to purchase uh, that book. But I'm actually going to turn the microphone over to you, Margaret, because we have entrepreneurs and business leaders out there who, especially given everything that's going on, feeling a little discouraged, feeling a little down. Could you give us some words of encouragement to take us out for today? Sure, Dominic. I'd be delighted to. I think one of the most interesting things about the entrepreneurial life is that there's a deep, rich history of companies that were born in downturns. 
uh, Dell and Microsoft to name but two, and another one that I've written about extensively, which is Method Home Care Products. And one reason that they're often very successful is because in a downturn, there are lots of brilliant people and lots of brilliant suppliers and partners who don't have a full book of work. And so if a startup gets in touch and asks, you know, would you do something for me? In boom times, they wouldn't even answer the email. But in down times, they're often willing to just take a chance and work with some new people. And this is absolutely how Method got its start. So they had a business that absolutely depended on having really beautiful packaging. They wrote to some of the top industrial designers in the world saying, could you help us? And they said yes. And because they had these beautiful-looking products, they were able, I think in their second or third year, to get into Target, which is absolutely unheard of, you know, for a startup. Right. And within a couple more years, in some categories, this little startup was beating Procter & Gamble. Mm. Now, they will tell you that you know, much of what they did in those early years, in the middle of a recession, they would never have been able to do in a booming economy. So take heart and be braver than you would be in a booming economy. You know, the companies you've always wanted to work with, they might be up for it. You don't know if you don't try. You don't know if you don't try. Thank you so much. And that's going to wrap up our time uh, with Margaret Heffernan. Margaret, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your insight. Well, thank you for a wonderful uh, conversation, Dominic. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Sounds good. And as always, Startup Nation, if you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life. If you want to let us know what you think about our show, have an idea for a show topic, or would like to advertise on our show, send us a message on the Startup Life Podcast Facebook page. And while you are there, like and follow our page as well. It's a great way for us to engage with you, Startup Nation, and really grow our community. The link is there in the show notes. Subscribe to the show as it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or even on your Facebook timeline or any other platform you like to get your podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you find our content valuable, please give us a five-star rating as it will help us climb the charts and help more people find our show. You can also listen to the show on the Startup Life Podcast new website. There you will find the all-new Startup Blog where I write on many topics that are interesting and helpful to you on your path to entrepreneurship. And hey, if you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life.